This information is subject to a disclaimer at the end of this podcast. Please ensure that you listen to the disclaimer and go to www.ubs.com for further information about UBS. Hi, everyone, and thanks for tuning into UBS's Global Research Pod Hub, a channel that shares insights from economists, strategists, and equity analysts on the pivotal questions and events shaping today's markets. My name is Bhanu Baveja. I'm Chief Strategist at UBS Investment Bank. China has been the largest driver of global growth over the last 10 years. But will this cyclical upturn in China, as it reopens, have the same impact on other regions, sectors, industries, as it has done in the past? In two videos, the first with APAC analysts and the second with Europe and US analysts, we're going to try and understand the impact China's reopening is going to have on different stock markets, growth and inflation. Let's start by thinking about what the China reopening means for China equities themselves first. And we're speaking with James Wang, head of China equity strategy. James, how do you think about the extent to which the China rally is already pricing in a pretty strong rebound? We've seen valuations move. We've seen earnings expectations move. How do you think how much is done? Thanks, Panu. So if we look at the forward P multiples, MSCI China, Hong Kong, and Asia are still trading 0.5 standard deviations cheap versus history. Now, versus the rest of the world, valuations are in line, but we expect earnings upgrades in China, maybe in the tune of 45%, and significant earnings downgrades for developed markets such as US and Europe. And as such, if we're just for the relative earnings performance, China's valuation remains cheap. Historically, the China market performed very well when there have been earnings upgrades. Think back to 2017. We think this year could be one of those markets for a number of factors. Last year was a very low base with high commodity prices, Shanghai lockdowns significantly impacting earnings. Number two, gross margin is at a historical low. SGNA and CapEx have fallen in the last two to three years, so the operating leverage as revenue start to turn could be very significant. And lastly, large businesses are cashed up. If we look at the leverage ratios for the listed companies, they're at a historical low. On the other hand, the SMEs are still leaking the wounds from last year. So the recovery for the large listed companies could be stronger than what we see from the GDP numbers alone. If I look at the Chinese New Year recovery trends, such as box office sales and direct tourist numbers, that's already at 90% of 2019 numbers. And I'll say the recovery trends were slightly ahead of expectations. And we've seen consensus and our analyst estimates starting to nudge up recently. But the market seems somewhat reserved and we've seen a bit of profit taking recently. But even for consumer or reopening related names, valuation is still at or below historical average. So I don't think the share price recovery is done. Which index would you be playing this through? Would you be playing this through ADRs or H shares as was your original recommendation? Or would you be playing this through A shares at this minute? Right now, we don't have a strong preference between ADR and A-shares and Hong Kong. So our top sector pick remains the internet sector, which is more well represented by the Hong Kong and ADRs. That said, we see more opportunities for A-share over the course of the year, given it's heavily influenced by domestic retail flows. And there is a significant pile of retail deposits on the sideline that could be deployed into the market this year. We're talking about an extra 7 to 8 trillion RMB, which was built up last year as consumers saved and pulled money out of risky assets such as property and equity. 
It's very reminiscent of the Indian equity market last year. Now, furthermore, if global growth troughs this year as we're expecting, this could also be beneficial for the Asia market given it's got a stronger weighting towards overseas businesses. Right, let's think a little bit about sectors and styles then. What would you be recommending to investors in terms of their positioning for both sectors and styles at this second? So given the weak global backdrop that we're expecting, we want to focus on sectors that are inward facing and would benefit from the domestic economic recovery. So consumer names, sectors such as beer, sportswear and leisure are an obvious choice. We also like home appliances as a laggard play given the very cheap valuation relative history. Internet remains our top pick given undemanding valuations and we see opportunities for re-rating as investors see regulatory pressures continuing to dissipate. In terms of growth versus value, we're definitely more overweight on growth given our positive stance on the share market. Thanks, James. That's very interesting. Let's talk a little bit about flows. About a year back, many investors were quite skeptical about investing in China. That seems to have changed. But to what extent can further inflows into the Chinese equity market lead to the rally? We estimate that EM and Asian funds remain underweight to the tune of 3 to 4 percentage points versus their benchmark at the end of December. And global funds around 0.7 percentage points underweight. So we see a room for further inflows. And this is particularly given the backdrop of relatively cheap valuation and weak global growth, as we've mentioned previously. Thanks very much, James. Let's next speak with John Lam, who's the head of China Property Research. Now, the property sector is one of the most import-thirsty sectors in China, which means that as property rebounds, you get EPS uplift in many sectors globally. Aussie mining, European cap goods, other sectors globally get a real lift when the property market is doing well. But will the property market do well? We've seen a very significant drop in land sales, in actual property sales, and also starts through the course of the last year. What is your outlook for the property market in China for this year? Thank you for the questions. So for this year, 2023, we expect a relatively weak recovery for the property sales, despite uh, multiple policy easing. So for 2023, we expect the property sales will be about down 10% in this year on GFA basis. On value basis, will be down by 15% uh, year on year. And the reason why is that because of the lower property price compared to last year. On the sequential basis, however, we are assuming or forecasting the property price will be stable. In terms of the new start, given that most of the developers are still running at a negative cash flow based on today's contract sales, and therefore we forecast the new start will still be about down 14% year on year. Land sale, we don't have a published forecast, but I guess will be similar to the new start decline for this year, which is about 14%. For the property investment, we forecast will be down by 8% for this year. In terms of the property sales momentum, we predict first half will be about down 20% for the first half year on year. Given that last year, first half, we still have a relatively high base and we extrapolate the trend from fourth quarter last year. But going into the second half this year, we expect the sales will recover to flattish year on year. That given the sales uh, for the base for last year will be lower, as well as the policy impact started to kick in or to become more effective. 
And then looking into 2024, we expect the sales will be flattish. Right. So it's still broadly a conservative outlook. So you don't think we are seeing a significant rebound in the China property market this year. Would you say that this is also the medium term view? So not just a 2023 issue, but also over a three to five year horizon. How do you think about the property market over that horizon? Yep. So over into a medium, like three to five years horizon, I guess there's going to be a gradual decline going forward. So compared to other developed countries such as US or Japan, we see that China property have a uh, two structural issue. Uh, first of all, is about overpriced it in tier one, tier two cities, as suggested by the price to income ratio. And second issue is about overbuilt in the lower tier cities. So with that, we strongly believe that, that the property not for speculation is a correct and right approach to tackle these two structural issues. And therefore with that, we don't expect there would be a similar policy easing, such as 2015, where the government used the rising property price or speculative demand to drive the demand here. And also coupled with the declining demographic dividend or aging population, according to the latest uh, National Bureau of Statistics data, we forecast the long-term demand is going to be roughly about 975 million square meters. And therefore, this year, or maybe next year, although we may have a slight rebound because of policy easing, but looking into three to five years horizon, we think that property sales will gradually trend towards these numbers. That's really interesting, John. So within the China property space, which are some of the winners over the coming 12 months, please? So after this current crisis, I think the business model for property developers will be greatly changed. So first of all, the government recently are also talking about to remove or to cancel the pre-sale model. And going forward, I think the Chinese developers is more like becoming the Hong Kong property company business model. So in a sense that we may see a low ROE, low leverage, low asset turnover, but at the same time will be more safer. And therefore, for these developers, we may foresee the earnings ROE may probably negatively impacted. And at the same time, like the Hong Kong company, I think the Chinese property company will also have to focus to transform their business model from a pure residential developer to a commercial property landlord. Thanks very much, John. Let's next speak about autos. Now, China's auto demand has fallen significantly relative to a 10-year trend. It's about 22% below a 10-year trend, but that's imports of autos. But not all auto demand is important. There are foreign companies who produce within China, and of course, China has its own production. To understand how we are thinking about the China auto cycle, let's speak with Paul Gong, head of auto research in China. Paul, how much will a China reopening help the auto industry in China? Through the course of all reopenings in the West, we have seen auto demand surge after the reopening. Do you think a similar dynamic will play out in China? Sure, Banu. Um, well, intuitively thinking, the reopening would enable the middle class to drive their cars for the tourism again in 2023, and that is definitely positive compared to 2022. But there were also some other factors affect that. Uh, throughout 2022, it was never a full-scale lockdown. 
there were some moments like in April, in November, the demand has been negatively affected. But there were also some moments like in June, July, um, the demand was uh, caught back, some of the North demands. And for seven months in 2022, there were also government's tax cut, purchase tax cuts on the ICE cards from 10% to 5%. That has been helping some of the demand in 2022. And more importantly, throughout 2022, the dealers inventory has been adding back. Um, the, the, the inventory has been, the channel staffing has been happening throughout 2022. So it, was, it wasn't really a low base for 2022. Then moving into 2023, the reopening helps on the positive end. But compared to the 2022 base, also the dealer's inventory, also the ends of the EV subsidies and uh, the ICE cars purchase tax incentives. Uh, these are also some drug factors. Eventually, we might see just flattish domestic demand on the wholesale level for the cars. So just to get into a little more detail here. So because China didn't have the same supply bottlenecks, you're saying that the flow of cars to the wholesalers and also to the consumers remain reasonably strong. So I just want to confirm that means that we're going to see weaker pent-up demand. We won't see such a large increase in demand from Chinese consumers as we did from U.S. consumers and European consumers post the lockdown. Yes, exactly. Um, so when the whole world continued to suffer from the uh, chip shortage uh, in 2022 after the 2021, uh, China's supply chain has been highly resilient throughout 2022. Um, even though in 2021, China auto industry also suffered from the chip shortage. In 2022, it wasn't. It was more like demand bottleneck instead of supply side bottleneck. So for 2023, for now, um, if some investors do anticipate some pent-up demand in China, they might feel a little bit disappointed. Now, very importantly, how do you think about how much of any incremental demand is going to be met by foreign companies? So to what extent will European auto companies benefit from this? And to what extent any demand is going to be met locally? Well, that is an even more um, bearish outlook, I would say. Uh, there is structural shifting towards our Chinese brands. Uh, during the past one decade, we have seen Chinese brand continuously gain market share at the cost of the foreign brands. Uh, Chinese brand as a whole, the market share has risen from 30% to nowadays 50%. Uh, that comes with the electrification where Chinese brand accounts to merely 30% something within the China's ice car market. They account to 85% in the EV market. So as the electrification rates move from 28% last year into 37% this year, as we expected, uh, the Chinese brand should continue to gain market share. Um, the foreign companies, global companies, are continuously losing here, uh, not only from the exports. The export has peaked out in 2017 and since then structurally declining. Uh, but the, even the local JVs uh, production, this has been under some pressure in this uh, shifting towards the EV. Thanks very much, Paul. Now, along with autos, another area where China's demand has been extremely weak is semiconductors. Nick heads Asia Tech Research out of Singapore. Nick, why has China demand for semis been so weak? Is it only the global semiconductor cycle that's been very weak recently after a very big pickup in 2020 and 2021? Or is this something China specific? Thanks, Manu. What you see in the import numbers for semiconductors is not just for end consumption in China, 
but also for inventory hubs for global players such as Apple, who manufactured in China to then re-export as well. So it reflects both China and global demand. China demand, however, has also been negatively impacted by COVID for longer due to the pandemic policies until last November. As an example, smartphone unit sales in China were down 14% year-over-year in 2022 and were 36% below 2018 levels. That's very interesting. So which segments of semi-demand are likely to pick up from here and to what degree will that normalize demand from China? But China reopening itself, therefore, will be a key driver for demand. We see a strong correlation between mobility and smartphone sales. In fact, we have already seen since Chinese year an improvement in procurement for smartphones. This will unlock pent-up demand from a replacement cycle, which has lengthened further. Uh, in addition, data center computing demand, servers, networking, etc., is also seeing a slowdown as large US hyperscale customers are adjusting to the microeconomic outlook. But medium term, they need to invest in more computing capacity and capabilities. It is, as an example, reasonably easy to picture how generative AI may lead to incrementally significant requirements for logic and memory semiconductors. Thanks very much, Nick. Let's think about now how the Chinese reopening is going to impact Japanese companies. And we are speaking to Nozomi Moria from our Japanese consumer space. Moria-san, thanks very much for making the time. What are the channels through which a China reopening will impact Japanese listed companies? When considering the impact on Japanese companies from China's reopening, we can think of two main channels. The first is a potential boost to the China business of Japanese companies in the consumer sector. And the second is a possibility of a recovery in Japan's inbound demand as travel from China to Japan revives. Maria-san, I wanted to ask you what proportion of the tourists coming into Japan come from China? And is this meaningful for Japanese markets and Japanese GDP? What sort of industries are most impacted? Of the 32 million people that visited Japan in 2019, 30% were from mainland China, while the rating for Greater China, including Hong Kong and Taiwan, reached 53%. Following the COVID pandemic and the easing of restrictions on entering Japan in October 2022, Japan visitors' numbers recovered to 54%, of the 2019 level in December 2022. However, visitors to Japan from elsewhere than China made a sharp recovery to 74%, while the number of visitors from China only came to 5%. Still, this is due to the border measures imposed by the Japanese government, including the requirement for travelers from mainland China to submit a negative PCR test certificate. If such restrictions on entering Japan are eased, we think inbound demand could recover, given the strong latent demand among Chinese tourists for travel to Japan. The UBS macroeconomics team projects the total expenditure by non-resident visitors to Japan at 3.6 trillion yen in 2023, equating to 0.7% of Japan's GDP. Looking at the overall industry, we expect this would boost urban forecast retailers, such as the department stores, as well as the hotel, restaurant, and transport sectors. 
And that begs the question, to what extent is this already priced? In your space, Maria-san, the consumer space, to what extent is the China reopening already priced? Following the easing of restrictions on entry to Japan in October 2022 and the subsequent turnaround from the zero-COVID policy in China, expectations for a China reopening look to have been priced in by the stock market to a certain extent. However, we think there could be upside if the market can confirm a strong consumption recovery in China, the easing of Japan's restrictions on travelers entering the country from China, and an uptrend in expenditure value by visitors to Japan alongside the country's low level of inflation. Along with Japan, tourism is a significant part of the ASEAN economies as well. Uh, let's speak with Parmara Darmono, who heads ASEAN Equity Research. Uh, Mara, to what extent is ASEAN GDP impacted by tourists from China? China and Malaysia are the two most exposed countries to China tourism, where tourism contributed 11% and 5% of their GDP respectively in 2019. We expect tourism to recover to 70% of pre-pandemic level in Thailand this year, where we forecast 28 million tourist arrivals. This scenario would add around 50 basis points to Thailand's GDP growth compared to last year. Still sticking with tourism, Mara, to what extent are some of the other sectors and countries in ASEAN positively impacted by the China tourism increase? Malaysia, Singapore, and Vietnam are the next three biggest beneficiaries from tourism, while Indonesia and the Philippines will benefit the least. Mara, China reopening also has an impact on some of the commodities uh, nickel being one of them through battery materials. And what are some of the plays in um, ASEAN, in your space, that will benefit from China reopening in that regard? Indonesia would be the biggest beneficiary, as it was the largest exporter of nickel before it banned ore exports to attract foreign investors to develop nickel smelters and downstream industries. The Philippines also have one of the largest nickel reserves in the world, but it has not implemented a nickel downstreaming policy akin to Indonesia. Let's now move to Australia and speak with Richard Shellback, Australian equity strategist. Richard, to what extent is this reopening in China going to have an impact on mining or the overall market in Australia? Although Australian miners have traditionally been a clear B to play on Chinese growth, we just recently reduced our sector recommendation on miners back to neutral. Our reasoning behind this shift is twofold. Firstly, the share prices of miners had already run hard over recent months in anticipation of a China reopening in 2023. Secondly, our economists see Chinese economic recovery through 2023 being consumption-led, not investment-led. This means that housing construction is likely to remain soft, and therefore iron ore is no longer the favoured reopening play for China. Based on your views on these sectors, funds should be going overweight Australia, or is it really just a bottom-up call and not one that will move the needle for the overall market? Ultimately, the Australian equity market is still dominated by banks and miners, and hence our preference and preferred China reopening stocks are not large enough to justify a reallocation to Australia on pure China reopening grounds. That said, we still expect regional investors to continue increasing their allocation towards China on the back of our resilient domestic economy, 
and the shift in preference towards income-oriented equities, something which Australia has always stood out on. Now let me try and summarise the key views from our analysts out here. So first, we do think the China rally has further to run. Funds have not fully allocated back to China, and as that money comes in, we will see multiples lift further. Also, as China's own data improves, we will see locals get involved, and that should push the A-share market along with the H-share market. This is not going to be a traditional China recovery. The property market is going to see an L-shaped recovery at best. Sequentially, things are going to improve modestly from Q2. But again, we are talking about flatlining more than we are talking about a significant surge. As a result of that, we are going to find that China's multiplier on the rest of the world is going to be much lower because the property market is the most import-thirsty market. Auto demand in China has been well below trend and is likely to remain below trend from abroad because domestic production has been quite strong and China is moving away from internal combustion engines to EVs, which China produces itself. So China is not going to impact European autos to the same degree, for instance. China will demand more semiconductors. The semi-cycle should pick up later this year, driven very largely by the handphone segment, but also other segments should pick up. So the big decline in semiconductor demand relative to trend should be made up for, and that should lift semiconductor stocks in Asia, Korea, Taiwan, Japan, China itself. So the tech cycle we are positive on towards the latter half of this year, many of those stocks are already doing quite well. Japan should see a lift in the consumer space, particularly as Japan is seeing less inflation and the yen has cheapened relative to the renminbi. The Japanese consumer may be a good way to play the China consumer rebound uh, and also through the tourism channel. Tourism will also help ASEAN, uh, but that seems to be already priced in. So unlike Japan, this seems to be already priced in in markets like Thailand. And lastly, for Australia, we do think that this is, again, priced into the mining stocks. But for certain consumer stocks, airline stocks, and education stocks, we still see further upside. Not large enough, unfortunately, to move the needle to get long the Aussie market just because of that. So those were thoughts from our analysts on how China's reopening is going to impact Asia-Pacific markets and sectors. In the second video that follows this, we will do exactly the same for European and U.S. markets. To what extent will China's reopening impact them? Stay tuned for that. Thanks very much for your time. This content has been prepared by UBS AG, its subsidiaries and or affiliates, and is purely informational in nature. It is not investment research and does not contain an investment recommendation, nor investment or professional advice. It is not an offer or solicitation to engage in any investment activity, and you should seek your own financial, tax, and legal advice before engaging in any such activity. UBS has no responsibility to you in relation to this content and has no regard to your personal circumstances or investment objectives, and receiving it does not imply any form of client relationship with UBS for any legal, regular regulatory or tax purpose. This content is not intended for distribution into any jurisdiction where to do so would be contrary to law or regulation. UBS does not accept any liability over the content of such material or reliance upon any information contained herein. The views and opinions expressed by any guest speaker or third party are not those of UBS. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over any such views and opinions expressed by 